Hey there, church family. Jay Hendricks here with an important update for our church. We know we're in a season of life where connection made with other believers is needed now more than ever. This is a vulnerable time for our nation and our community, and we are mourning and need to lament together and need to work through the difficult times together. We need to have meaningful relationships and conversations with each other. And as your pastors, we are constantly praying on how to lead you and our church family and how to do that. Several weeks ago, we gave the green light for life groups to start meeting in person during the week in small groups of adults with certain precautions. Anyone who wasn't comfortable with meeting in person were encouraged to join via Zoom. And since then, many life groups have begun to meet and the feedback we've received has been encouraging. Our church is unique in the fact that we are so strongly oriented towards group life. And because of that, life groups play a much larger role in us getting back to normal than what you might see in other churches around you. While we are continuing in the direction of meeting together as one big church family, we must proceed with prayer and caution as cases are currently rising in our state. With that said, if you aren't already, we want to encourage your life group to meet together virtually on Sundays for worship via Zoom. This serves as a chance for some measure of fellowship together with others in our church family. We hope to move into the next phase around mid-July. And for this phase, we want to encourage life groups to begin to meet together in person for Sunday worship. More details will be released along with suggestions of how to safely meet with children. And we also hope to make this time intentional with group sermon discussion. And of course, if you aren't comfortable meeting in person, you can join via Zoom. While in-person participation in life groups and Sunday gatherings are normal covenant habits for us to hold each other accountable to, we won't operate in that way for now. We want everyone to do what they're comfortable doing with no pressure one way or the other. The final phase of reopening will be when we are able to once again meet together as one body of Christ in our actual building. At the earliest, we believe that we could potentially begin moving in that direction sometime in August. The counsel we've received is to start in-person gatherings when case numbers in our state decline. And again, currently those numbers are increasing by the day. Of course, we will continue to monitor and make decisions based on CDC guidelines, and any trends in any direction could shift the timeline. So please allow us grace as we continue to lead during this time. And of course, as we go through different stages of reopening, we'll continue to give you wise options to choose from. We're all in this together, so let's all continue to pray for and love one another through this pandemic. And we can't wait to meet together again. You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Have you ever tried to help someone, but you didn't really know how to help? The help you offered never really worked, or even worse, the whole situation blew up in your face? I remember one of the first times that I dealt with this in ministry. Before my wife Erica and I were married, we had a a good friend who was in the Midtown College ministry, and she turned out to have borderline personality disorder, which meant that for over a year, we walked alongside her through manic depression, through anger, through suicidal ideation, and it just kept going downhill. It ended up where Erica and I were doing 24-hour watch with her for almost a week, and we realized this is not working. 
Today in our text in 1 Timothy 5, Paul addresses one of these complicated kind of help issues. He digs in and gets really practical and specific. And so I wanna read back through the whole passage, connecting some dots for us, and then I'll pull out three big principles for us. 1 Timothy chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. Okay, so this is the issue that he's gonna dig in on. How do we help widows? So even more so in their day, widows did not have many options or supports. They often ended up destitute and the church wants to help, but there's some complexity to the situation. And so Paul is helping them think it through. Pick it back up in verse four. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. This is Paul's first thought. He says if the widow has kids or grandkids, they should take care of her. The church shouldn't step in and accidentally enable the children to abdicate their familial responsibility. He comes back around on this idea even harder down in verse eight. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And then again, at the end of the passage in verse 16, he says, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Okay, so this is a huge deal to Paul that people take care of their household. We'll come back around to that later on. Pick it back up where we left off in verse five. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. We already looked at verse eight, so skip to verse nine. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. So like he did for church leaders in chapter three, Paul gives kind of this description, this list of positive character qualifications for widows they're going to take care of. But then he lays out some concerning trends that they were dealing with starting in verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander for some have already strayed after Satan, all right? There's a ton to unpack in this passage. I wanna draw out three huge principles for us help us understand what Paul's saying and how we can apply it to our lives. Idea number one, church is a family. Number two, church is a family where we calculate value differently. And number three, church is a family where our goal is help that really helps. I'm gonna unpack each one of those. Number one, church is a family. 
Family is such a powerful word. Uh, in the life of our church, I don't know if there's any single word that is more distinctive for our culture and who we want to be as we follow Jesus. And it's unfortunate because a lot of businesses are kind of latching on to this family language as a, a marketing slogan. So I recently saw an Airbnb ad that said, uh, we accept everyone, no matter who you are, into the Airbnb family. Subtext, so long as you give us your money. All right, that's what it means to be in the Airbnb family. Uh, another time I saw a bank ad that was welcoming in new customers into a community to belong to, the bank's family. Woof, that's my response to that. Hey, hear me, family is not a marketing slogan to us or to the Bible. In fact, family is the primary metaphor that the scriptures use to describe the church, and it is a word of deep, commitment, that no matter what happens in your life, I'm going to be there with you. When you're up, I'm celebrating. When you're down, I'm mourning. But we are connected to each other for the long haul, like a family. Every time the scriptures call Christians brothers or sisters, children of God, every time it talks about brotherly affection, fellowship, God adopting us, God being our father, it's all pointing to this idea. So Paul starts chapter five here in verse one and two with four commands for how to treat each other like family. He says, treat the older men as fathers in verse one. He says, treat the younger men as brothers in verse one. He says, treat the older women as mothers and treat the younger women as sisters in verse two. And he gives just a few qualifiers in these verses that I'll actually go into in more detail for the midweek podcast, but he mostly just lets the analogy carry the weight here because the analogy is beautiful and weighty on its own. How beautiful of a picture it is when the church operates like a family. When someone has a child and their in-laws get into town and our church has provided two weeks worth of meals for the family and their in-laws and they go, what is this? This is beautiful. It's like you have this whole extended family here. How much better off would our world be if everyone was a part of this family and treated each other like brothers and sisters they were committed to for life? If every widow on earth was honored and cherished by younger people who treated her and cherished her like their own mother, how about if every young woman on earth was treated with absolute purity? How necessary and beautiful would that be? This is why the marketing execs use the family language, because everyone wants to be a part of this. And in this church's family context is absolutely essential to how we think about helping people because of point number two. Church is a family where we calculate value differently. We calculate the value of human beings differently than the world does. Here's what I mean. I love that Paul's instruction in verse three is honor widows. Honor widows. It's not just deal with them. Not just help them out, throw some money at them. He says, no, honor them. I'd like you to think about widows for just a second. If you're a kid there with your parents, a widow is an older married woman whose husband has died. 
Now, culturally speaking, here in Ephesus, widows were even worse off than they are in our culture. They had no social security, no guaranteed means of income or access to education. So a widow is aging, she's relatively unemployable, she's seen as a burden, especially if she didn't have kids to take care of her. And Paul says, now that right there is a group of people that you are going to want to honor. I love how one pastor, Bose Hughes, put it. He summed it up like this. He said, it's amazing that Scripture has so much to say about widows. Scripture has such a high view of them. It honors them in such a way that most cultures don't. In a lot of cultures still today, a woman's significance is entirely wrapped up in her husband. So when her husband dies, so does her social significance. The culture just begins to disregard them. And Paul is saying, no, 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 they're valuable and they're to be honored and loved and served regardless of if they have a husband or not because they are important to God and they're important within the church family. So throughout the scriptures, God is described as a father to the fatherless, defender of the widows. He defends their cause. He says over and over again, don't take advantage of the orphan or the widow. If you take advantage of a widow and she prays to me, I will hear her cry and I will be provoked in anger. Those are problems you do not want. So in the Old Testament, judges who withheld justice from widows were judged harshly by God. Farmers are told, take a tithe of what you get and give it to the widows. When you you harvest your fields, leave some at the edges unharvested for those who are in need, including widows. You get to the New Testament and Jesus picks up on this theme. He raises the widow of Nain's son. He teaches a parable about the persistent widow. He just honors them over and over. He talks about them all the time. And then even on the cross, Jesus provides for his widowed mother. He tells John, one of his closest disciples, this is now your mother. Take care of her, honor her, cherish her. And all of this focus on widows is one example of a bigger aspect of God's character that God has a special love for the vulnerable, the little guy, the weak, the unnoticed, the oppressed. And because of his love for the vulnerable, he commands his people to be a people where value is calculated differently than it is in the rest of society. See, in general in society, human value is bound up by function and productivity. You're smart, you're productive, you're good looking, you're impressive, you're socially skilled. Okay, you get the money and the jobs and the honor and the respect. But the weak, the oppressed, the elderly, the sick, they're afterthoughts. They're seen as burdens rather than image bearers, but not to Jesus. When Jesus descends to earth, he he lives as an impoverished, sometimes homeless man. As he ministers, he embraces both the weak and the strong, challenging and exploiting corrupt systems along the way. On the cross, as he's being crucified, he's still thinking about the vulnerable and the weak, the brokenhearted, the burdened ones. That is beautiful. And it's beautiful on multiple levels. See, for all of us, it's beautiful if we perceive the ways in which we are spiritually weak and vulnerable. We are unable to heal ourselves outside of Jesus coming and paying for our sins in the cross. And then at a whole nother 
practical level, this is beautiful because the church family is designed to be a refuge for the hurting, where the vulnerable are honored, loved, cherished, because we calculate value differently. We calculate human value in God's terms. As Christians, the way society calculates value is unacceptable to us. This is why as a family of churches, we are vocal about racial injustice. This is why we care about the unborn. This is why we advocate for fostering and adoption. And this is why we love the homeless in our city. In fact, each of our Serve the City partnerships fits into this category. This is not just talk for us. We put our time, our energy, our effort, and our money into this because it is the heart of God and it is his heart for his people. And as we do that, number three, Church is a family where our goal is help that really helps. Holistic help, big picture help. See, as Christians, we are absolutely called to reflect God's love for the vulnerable. And there are ways to give help that doesn't actually help in the long run. I love how Paul gives really these specific instructions and he helps answer some questions for this church to think through about the issue of helping widows. There's three main questions I see him answering. The first one is this, uh, who should be giving the help? So we mentioned this earlier in verse four, eight, and 16, he says if a widow has kids or grandkids that they should take care of her, not the church. So every time someone asks for help, that doesn't mean that you should necessarily be the one to give that help. Sometimes the best way to help is to point that person to a better place to receive more holistic help that they need. The second question that I see him answering is, how is the help going to be used? This matters. This question matters to us. In verse 11 through 15, There's a specific issue for the church in Ephesus where some of the widows are using the church's generosity to freeload. They're becoming idle gossips and busybodies. They're helping promote false teaching that the church is riddled with while they get led away from Jesus to unhealthy marriage idolatry. And Paul says, hey, Timothy, that's not gonna be a good use of the church's resources. That's not actually a helpful way to help if it's causing more problems and damage than real help. And then that leads us to maybe the biggest question of all in all of this, which is what kind of help does this person really need? So in verse five, Paul describes the faithful widow as devoted to and dependent on God. And then in verse nine through 10, he adds that she's a faithful wife who took care of her kids. She's known for her good works, her hospitality, her servant heartedness, and her love for the afflicted. In other words, she faithfully follows Jesus. She makes much of Jesus in her life. Now, this is all in contrast to to a more faithless widow that Paul describes in verse six when he says, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And that could sound kind of harsh, but the heart of what Paul's saying here is there are all kinds of help that would miss the mark of what somebody really needs. See, if someone is well-fed but dead in their soul, that's a loss to us as the church. That's a loss. As the church, we always want to help, but we know that sometimes the type of help that's needed is a call to repentance. Sometimes it's connection to a community of people to walk alongside. Sometimes it's physical or material help. It's always the gospel of God's relentless love. We got to know what kinds of help are needed in order to be able to give help that really helps. 
Okay, so all of these questions that Paul's bringing up and, and addressing in different ways, this is really helpful. We, we as a church, we're thinking about this kind of stuff all of the time. I'll give you one example. Uh, all of this is exactly what we've been doing during COVID. We've all given money and we're deciding what to do with it. Okay, so we actually have this um, most updated as of June 8th. We've got 122 people who have raised almost $44,000. We've bought almost 80 weeks worth of groceries, four car payments, four utility bills, four rent payments, two tax payments. And for all of those, someone has said, hey, I need help. And we've looked at the situation and said, yes, you do. But I wanna be really clear. If somebody came to us and said, hey, COVID's been awful. I need $10,000. And we said, oh, okay, are, are you sick? No, nope, just need $10,000. Oh, okay, have, have you lost your job? No, 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 just need the $10,000. Okay, are, are you worried about losing your job? No, listen, you're not getting any dollars. That's not what this is for. And we're asking questions to make sure that we're helping in the most helpful way possible. With any kind of help situation, we've got to be asking these questions. Who should be giving the help? These are questions we ask. Should it be a pastor? Should it be their life group, their life group leader? Should it be family members who need to be taking care of their responsibility? I will tell you this. If you are a life group leader and you try to help every hurting person in your group, I'll tell you what you'll be a year from now. You'll be a burned out life group leader. Or more likely, you won't be a life group leader anymore. And you'll be sad and hurt and bitter. We're a family, so we share the load. Many hands make for light work. It's not always your job to be the one who gives the help. We always help, but it's not always you personally who does it. How is the help going to be used? Now, we can't control all of this, but as much as possible, we want our help going to real needs, not to self-destructive behavior. So I remember a long time ago, when I was just starting out as a pastor, some, uh, a professional in Columbia who worked with the homeless population told me that you should never give money to a panhandler. And I was like, oh no, you don't understand. I love Jesus and we're supposed to help people. And he said, no, 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 I really understand. Here's what you should do instead. Ask them if you can take them to go get some food and then have a conversation with them while you eat. Now you've not only made sure that your financial help goes to food, something actually helpful in their lives, but you also start a relationship where you can find out how much their need goes beyond that meal and you can actually get them the help that they really need. This all leads to the biggest question of all, what kind of help does this person really need? So in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. The miss here for those of you who are really empathetic and you just feel for hurting people is you could think, wait, that's not loving, Paul. But the truth is, it's a deeper love. As Christians, we always want to love and help, but love and help takes different forms. If someone can work, but they won't work, then the form that love takes is, hey man, you need to go get a job. How can I help you get a job? Do you need to borrow my suit for an interview? Do you need to practice for the interview? Do you need me to look for work around my house that I can pay you to do while you're looking for more long-term employment? I'm down with all of that. But if you're not gonna work and you're able to work, then free food would actually be detrimental to the real help that you need. So those are the big ideas. Let me just end our time by addressing some different groups of people who, who are listening at home uh, today. 
for my life groups who are struggling to help someone right now. Man, I would just so much encourage you to ask these three questions. These are conversations that your core group should be having regularly. These are kinds of questions that help us last, help people have wisdom and not grow cold or burned out as we try to help people over time. Pray through this stuff, have some conversations and go about helping in a wise way. Second group of people, for anyone out there, if you're listening right now and you have parents, you're gonna note that's most of us. I just wanna be real clear in case you missed it in verse four or again in verse eight or again in verse 16. If you have parents, you absolutely 100% have a responsibility to take care of them as they age. Hard stop. Paul goes so far as to say, if you won't, then you've rejected Jesus and you're worse than an unbeliever. Now, there are a variety of ways that you might go about helping your parents as they age, but what you cannot do is act like it doesn't concern you. Your parents gave the best parts of their lives, caring for you when you were helpless. They changed your diapers. They kept you alive. And this text says it pleases God when you realize that and make a return on their investment by loving them and caring for them as they age. I would go as far as to say culturally, this is a problem in America that we have got to get some redemption going on. Now, also, as I say that, I know that some of you have painful, estranged, or damaging relationships with your parents, and that you might have to really wrestle with God's spirit and talk to your life group about what this means for you. But overall, the vast majority of our parents are not monsters, and we have a God-given responsibility to take care of them as they have need as they age. Here's a, here's a third group uh, for the group I will call my critiquers out there. Some of y'all, you like to play this fun game where you sit back and do nothing except for critique everyone else who does get in the game and try to help people. Largely, you do this on Twitter and Facebook. Whether it's your life group leader or politicians or your pastors or your church or your city, these are hard and complex issues. You know if I'm talking to you right now and I'm gonna tell you to your face, you should repent from your critical spirit, humble yourself, and ask how you can help instead of telling everyone else that they're doing it wrong. Switch gears a bit to a fourth group. For my, but can't I just help everybody, folks? You are so near and dear to my heart. And to that question, at some level, I would say yes, but only if you realize that God's vision for help is bigger and different and not exactly what you think it is. And secondly, when it comes to you personally, I would say no, you cannot, because God is God, not you. I'll tell you what someone told me earlier in ministry when I was running myself into the ground trying to help everybody who was in need. They told me, read through the gospels and notice the times when Jesus says no. So in Mark 1, the disciples run up to Jesus saying, there's this whole town with sick people and they're looking for you, Jesus. And he calmly responds, okay, we need to go to some other towns to preach the gospel there. He doesn't go help the people who need help and are asking for him to help. At the end of Luke 4, a crowd is begging Jesus to stay and help them more. And he says, no, I actually need to move on and keep preaching the kingdom that's coming. 
Sometimes the most loving thing you can say to someone who is asking for help is, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to do that. Are they going to like that answer? No. Will they slander you to others? Well, they certainly do that to me sometimes, so my guess is they might do it to you too. But the other option is you try to be everyone's savior and you die. And I, as your pastor, can't vote for that option. Last group of people to address. For my, well, that's not my problem, folks, who have twisted the idea of personal responsibility to mean you don't need to get involved when other people are in need. If you claim to be a Christian, you worship God who became a man, who took on all of our sin problem onto himself, dying in the cross. He literally took responsibility for other people's problems, including yours and mine. And he commands us to go love the vulnerable, the weak, the oppressed people that he has a special love for. 1 John 3, 17 would say, if you've got the world's goods and you see your brother in need, but close your heart to him, how is it possible that God's love abides in you? I would say you've got two options. You can repent or you can admit that you're not a Christian. But don't go on living a self-indulgent life thinking that you're fine. Paul says in this passage that you are dead even while you're alive. And the least helpful, least loving thing that I could do is not call you on it. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, thank you so much that when we were weak, when we were dead in our sins, you loved us. Jesus, you came to earth, you lived a weak, vulnerable, broken life, but your strength shone through in the midst of it, that you were driven to the cross to die and pay for our sins, to bring eternal healing, eternal help for all of us who would turn by faith, who would humble ourselves to admit how much we need you, how weak and vulnerable we are. God, I pray that that simple reality of the heart of the gospel would motivate us to look for, to have an eye for the weak and the vulnerable, to always be asking your spirit to show us people that we can love and help the way that you have loved and helped us. Lead us to repent wherever we need to repent, whether it's we say yes to everything and we're killing ourselves because we think we're supposed to be you, or whether we have just hardened our heart to the reality of your love that wants to flow through us to the people around us. We pray it all in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.